This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday. Today, we're back for the last of our four-part mini-series on the story of Hadrian's Wall on its 1900th anniversary. From the end of Roman control in Britain to the medieval period and the rediscovery of the wall by early archaeologists, we're now looking at the legacy of Hadrian's Wall. We'll also consider how the remains of the wall and its forts are being conserved for future generations. And joining us to guide us on this journey back to the present day are properties historian Dr Andrew Roberts and curator of Hadrian's Wall and the Northeast region Dr Francis McIntosh. Andrew, let's start off with you. To bring us up to speed, how would you summarise the story of the wall that we've covered in this series so far and its role in the Roman occupation of Britain? So the Roman Emperor Hadrian arrives in Britain in roughly AD 122. This is about 80 years into Roman rule of Britain, and he orders the construction of a continuous barrier across what is today the north of England. This runs 73 miles from the River Tyne in the east across fields, hills and rivers to the Solway Firth in the west. And he does this to block off the existing frontier of the Roman province of Britannia as part of his empire-wide policy of border consolidation. At about five metres high with a, a deep ditch in front of it, it's an imposing barrier and it's intensively occupied by military garrisons every 500 metres or so. The largest of these garrisons reside at the forts, which are sort of large communities of up to about a thousand soldiers, their families, and also others who come to the forts in order to take advantage of the spending power of the soldiers. And some of these people come to Hadrian's Wall from across the three continents of the Roman world. So Hadrian's Wall remains in place until the end of Roman Britain, and although its extent and some of its functions remain the same over the course of 350 years, subsequent generations sort of rebuild it, they reshape it, they adjust it according to their needs. And the people living there at the end of Roman Britain are quite different from those that built it and first occupied it. So what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Romans' departure? Roman rule of Britain formally ends in around 410 AD. And what this essentially means is that there's no longer governance, central governance. And most importantly for Hadrian's Wall, the army that is stationed in Britain is no longer being paid by the Roman administration. So as we have we discussed at the end of the, the previous episode, In general terms, this would have been economically catastrophic. So the various big settlements that are built throughout the province, there are are various big, big cities, big towns, which could include, of course, the forts along Hadrian's Wall, are built around the spending power of the Roman state. They're built around the spending power of the Roman army. And they're not really sustainable in absence of this this kind of cash flow. Also, for military installations like like Hadrian's Wall, there's no longer a strategic reason. There's no longer an entity for them to kind of protect. There's no reason for them to carry on functioning the way that they did under under Roman rule. So we can nuance that picture slightly. You know, up until comparatively recently. Scholars believe that there was something of a a kind of a a collapse of society in in Roman Britain and that the the forts 
along Hadrian's Wall essentially ceased to be communities. But more recently, we've started to kind of nuance that portrait a little bit. We know that some communities did stay long after sort of the official end of Roman Britain. And some evidence for that comes from the fort of Bud Oswald, where it seems that there was a continuity of usage of that space. And we might imagine that we had something like uh, an independent community, perhaps based around a kind of a war band that was able to protect itself and live off its locality. Now, more widely, what's going on in in the subsequent century after the end of Roman Britain is that we see an emergence of smaller kingdoms where once there was this unified province. So, for example, in the the east, we see the emergence of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, such as Benicia and Diera, which are going to coalesce into the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. And in the west and the northwest, we see the emergence of what we term sort of British kingdoms, such as such as Reged. And this is going to be the sort of the basis of the political structure of medieval Britain. Our understanding of this, this period is, is quite fragmentary, and we have to kind of talk in, in fairly broad brushstrokes, particularly of the century or so immediately after the end of Roman Britain. Regarding then this early medieval period, Francis, we're shifting our attention now to this. What historical records exist from this post-Roman era in Britain? And also, what do they tell us about the wall? Well, we've got two really key pieces of writing from that early medieval period that talk about the wall. One is by Gildas, who was a British monk who we think lived about 500 to 570. He was born in Strathclyde, what's now Scotland, and, and died in France. And he wrote, we think about 540, something called the Ruin of Britain, which is talking about this period of Britain, but the section on Hadrian's Wall, or what we call Hadrian's Wall, is very interesting. He thinks, and this is not much more than 100 years after the end of Roman rule, so, you know, in our mind, you know, that doesn't feel very long ago, really. But by that point, there seems to have already been quite a loss of understanding. So he thinks the wall wasn't built until the late 4th or early 5th century, when we know, obviously, it was built in the 120s. And he thinks it was built when the British people requested help from the Romans to come and build a wall because of invasions from the north. And he also knew about the Antonine Wall, so that wall further north in Scotland that lasted about 20 years. And he thought that the the Antonine Wall was the first attempt to keep what he calls the Picts out, uh, one of the northern tribes, and that failed. And then the Romans sent a legion to help the British build this wall. So that's quite interesting, you know, straight away, he knows that the wall's linked to the Romans, but has completely, in a way, got the wrong end of the stick. He's, you know, a few hundred years out. And it sounds as though that he's sort of putting his own political impressions onto the story. Yes. I mean, we always have to think about people in their context, in their time period, in their geographical location. And he's presumably trying to fit the wall and the remains into kind of what he thinks was happening. And that's influenced, you know, drastically by troubles and things that happened at the time where where there's allegiances and alliances and not. So Gildas is our first post-Roman source that talks about the wall. And then we have another monk, and that's where most of our literary sources come from in this early medieval period, the monasteries and Christianities, how literacy is kept going in Britain. Um, Another monk that probably more people will have heard of than Gildas is Bede. So Bede is very famous. He was born in Tylenweir and moved to the monastery in Jarrow 
and died there. He was born about 672, 673 and died in 735. And he wrote a famous text called The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. He wrote that in 731. So that's about 200 years later, give or take, from Gildas. Unlike Gildas, he does seem to have visited the wall because he's got detailed measurements. So we know that in 731, the wall was still in some places standing 12 feet high and then it was eight feet wide. However, he seems to have followed with Gildas that the wall wasn't built until the late Roman or even the post-Roman period. But with Bede, we get a bit more detail again in that the vallum, so that huge ditch south of the wall, Bede thought was built by the Emperor Severus. And that the turf wall was also something to do with Severus. So they're separating out what we now know as one whole system of forts, ditches, mile castles, turrets, etc., these are the first people who are starting to talk about the different parts of the wall being built by different people. Mm. Um, and although these two are very early, their writings really influence thinking right up until the 18th, 19th century. So their impact is absolutely huge on the study of the wall and people's understanding, you know, Septimius Severus's link to the wall or the fact that both Bede and Gildas described the forts as urbes, so the Latin urbes, which led people for quite a long time to think the forts were civilian settlements and not see them as forts and military occupations. So it gives us some hints about the war, but it also really shows, A, how much knowledge had been lost quite quickly, and also how important these writings are to the study of the wall right up until the 19th century. Just goes to show, really, that as long as you write something down in history, it immediately gets legitimacy, even if it's actually demonstrably wrong. And for centuries... Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, no one would have known that Bede and Gildas were wrong. They were the only people writing at the time. And obviously, if it's coming from a monk, you're presumably given a bit of, you've got some kudos because you're writing, you know, on God's side. So people will believe you. And you can write, whereas most people can't. Exactly. Yeah. It's remarkable, isn't it? How how people misunderstood the wall for so long. Well, yeah. And, you know, Gildas is, what, 130 years after the official end of Roman rule. And you think, to us, in some ways, that doesn't sound very long, but actually, that's 1890. <laughs> so we yes. we misunderstand a lot of things that happened in 1890, don't we? It's just that when you look back in time, it distorts what your kind of expectations are of people's memories. And it doesn't take long for knowledge to be lost. It takes a generation, perhaps even less, well, exactly. if the information isn't passed on. Yeah, you know, in 130 years, what's that? Five generations, potentially, isn't it? So, so that's a lot of lost knowledge, effectively. Mm-hmm. A huge amount. Yes. Bearing all that in mind, how did the wall fall into ruin after the key sites were abandoned? Do we have any working theory on that, Francis? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really easy, isn't it? If you don't clear your gutters, your gutters will probably fall down. One of the main things that would have affected it was simple lack of maintenance. As soon as something starts to need repair and not get it, it'll start to collapse. And then as soon as you get roof tiles missing, you can get rain into buildings, etc. So that's one big thing. It's I went on holiday to Corfu and there was a large earthquake in 1979 in Corfu, which drastically affected huge amounts of the rural settlements. Now, obviously, they'd had some damage from the earthquake, but I went to visit some of the villages in inland and you saw buildings that had only been abandoned for about 40 years and already they've got trees growing through the roofs and through the windows. Mm-hmm. And so I think you forget how much If you don't maintain a building, it will start to degrade very, very quickly. So that's one big factor. Then there's also a huge amount of stone robbing. Almost any building 
within a few miles of the wall along its entire length. If it's built out of stone and it was built after the Roman period, it's probably built out of the wall or the fort that's nearby. We even have some official sources that talk about Wilfred, who is the Bishop of York, who in 674 ordered the building of a new church at Hexham, which becomes the Abbey at Hexham. And we know that stonemasons came to Corbridge, the Roman town here, to take stone from the, the remains. Lanacross Priory, which is one of our English heritage sites very close to Bird Oswald Fort, is all built out of Hadrian's Wall. So people living along the wall, as well as not maintaining their buildings to live in, also helped out by uh, taking them away because they're lovely sized and shaped blocks to build yourself a new building or a new house or a field wall or an animal shelter. And I suppose it would have been just easier than to, than to quarry them because oh, absolutely. it's ready-made. Okay, so I suppose we can't blame them too much. <laughs> well, no, you know, the, if nobody's looking after it, then it's seen as a an easy target. And why would you go and quarry and cut your own stone if down the road is some stone that's already quarried, ready to go? It's recycling. Exactly. It's recycling, <laughs> yes, exactly. Very forward thinking by those early medieval people. Andrew, did the wall then serve any kind of strategic purpose during the medieval period? Well, as, as Francis indicated, that the reuse of the wall's material starts reasonably early in, in the early Anglo-Saxon period. And that actually, that process of reusing the wall continues throughout the medieval period up until the 15th century. It's a really interesting question, this idea of it serving a strategic purpose and one that, one that can be answered in a number of different ways. I'll start with telling you something that it wasn't, something that it didn't do. So one of the biggest misunderstandings about Hadrian's Wall is that it was, and, it, and indeed in some people's minds still is, the border between England and Scotland. This is not true and it never has been true. So the Anglo-Scottish border runs from roughly from the, the Solway Firth, so not too far from where the wall ends in, in the west, up the River Esk, and then sort of northwestwards across Britain to just north of Berwick-upon-Tweed. And that has been the case since roughly the 10th, 11th centuries. However, that doesn't mean that Hadrian's Wall has not played a role in what we might term the Anglo-Scottish frontier and indeed influence the idea of the border and people's conception of the border and what a border might be. So when I'm talking about a frontier, we're used to thinking perhaps about sort of modern day borders, which are pretty well defined. You know, generally speaking, the modern nation state has a kind of a, a line where its borders are and they're, they're very well defined. They are these sort of narrow barriers, either physical or, or conceptual. However, in the medieval period, Hadrian's Wall exists in the middle of a sort of a frontier zone between these, these two sort of fledgling entities, England and Scotland. And actually, the control of this area is reasonably fluid up until the 16th century. It's a kind of a contested space, a contested region. So the role that Hadrian's Wall plays in that is that at various different periods, there are a kind of attempts to sort of tame or at least try to kind of mitigate some of the consequences of this being an area where there's no clear authority. There is raids by both sides of this area in this period. There's there's a degree of lawlessness. And so we do know that there is some evidence to suggest that certain parts of the wall are used as part of a system of night watches. So for example, Francis talked about Lanacost Priory, which is about a kilometre south of Hadrian's Wall, just around the corner from Bird Oswald, and it, and it too is an English heritage site. 
part of the extent of its territory is well, the extent of its territory goes right up until the Curtain Wall at a place called Hare Hill. And it seems as though Hare Hill and the turret that was there was potentially reused in the medieval period as, as a sort of a watchtower as part of this night watch. And we also have other potential evidence of this, for example, in a place called Steel Rig, there was potentially a watchtower built there. And we know that the watch were based at other wall locations such as Hedon on the Wall or Carabra. And it makes sense to do this because the Romans often chose the path of greatest visibility so that they could see across the landscape. So it's a good place to watch out for raiders or, or any anyone with sort of ill intent towards your castle or your, your farmstead. And you've also got all of this kind of physical fabric that you can either build with or you can kind of adapt to suit your purposes. But it's important to understand that it's not working as a coherent border as it would have been in the Roman period. I think, though, aside from the sort of the physical reuse of the wall, I think its more profound contribution during the mid to sort of late medieval period is how it kind of occupies a kind of a space in the idea of what the border might be in this region. So in sort of early maps that are being produced in the medieval period, they show England as this kind of place of civilization. I should underline that we're talking about English map makers here. Scotland is a sort of barbarous nation to the north, and Hadrian's Wall is kind of the barrier between them, even though it's not necessarily the official border. And indeed, during the Tudor period, there is a, a suggestion that the border could be fortified, i.e. do something like what Hadrian's Wall was in the Roman period. And at the same time, there develops this kind of pseudo-historical idea that Hadrian's Wall was once the actual barrier between England and Scotland, even though we know that it never was the case. And this sort of idea is what kind of, I think, lingers in to this day. And people still sometimes think that it was the border between the Scottish and the English. I think that that, that came up quite a lot during the um, the Scottish referendum vote. People were talking about rebuilding Hadrian's Wall to kind of partition the, the two nations. What about the forts, though, that uh, surrounds the wall? What emerges on the site of these in the medieval period? And did any of these have continued use? Yeah, so within this context of this frontier zone, this kind of debatable land between these two kingdoms of Scotland and, and England, there's something of an authority vacuum and also kind of an opportunity for those that might want to exploit the situation to engage in raiding behavior, what we call reaving. And this went on throughout the medieval period, but particularly came to a head in, in the 16th century. And in order to try and cope with the possibility of, say, for example, having your cattle raided by somebody from across the border, the communities along the wall chose to sort of build structures that were quite defensively minded. And they came up with this very distinctive style of vernacular architecture. One example of this is what's called a basil house, which is essentially a, a, a humble farmhouse that is extra fortified. So what you would have is you'd have a two-story building built from very thick stone and on the ground level, you have a, essentially a, a barn where you can keep your cattle safe. You can kind of herd your cattle inside at night or in, in the case of a raid. You can bar the doors. You have very, very narrow windows. And then up above that on the first floor, you have the accommodation for the family. And, and the only access to that would, would have been via a ladder, which you then pulled up at night. And hopefully you'd, you'd remain safe from any, any raiders. Although there are some examples of reavers attempting to essentially burn people out of their vassals. And so we have examples of these right across the borderlands, really. 
including at a couple of, of Hadrian's Wall forts. So one of these stood at Bird Oswald. You can't really see very much of it today. You can only sort of see it, its kind of footprint. But at Housesteads, you can actually see quite clearly the remains of a vassal house that was built. Essentially, they adapted the south gate of the fort and extended it slightly, reused the stone and built this sort of stronghold where they could be live protected from any potential raids. And Housesteads is an interesting example of the sort of the Reaving culture because we do know of one particular family that lived at Housesteads, the Armstrongs. And they were known to actually form raiding parties, meeting at a place called Busy Gap, which is about a mile east of Housesteads. And they would go off and raid in across the border in, into Scotland. And this kind of behaviour goes on throughout the, the 16th and 17th centuries. But then eventually, particularly with the unification of the crowns of Scotland and England, things start to be put in order. So by the 18th century, reaving behaviour was ended, particularly because Nicholas Armstrong of Housesteads was actually hanged for reaving in 1704. And from the 18th century, particularly, Hadrian's Wall becomes a place which can be more, it becomes a bit more of a civilised place. It becomes, you know, a safer place to live, a safer place to visit. And we enter into a, a period where there's an opportunity to kind of rediscover Hadrian's Wall's past. It sounds as though there was essentially a period of time when the Roman story of the wall had been lost based on everything we've been describing up until this point. How did historians come to piece together the story that we kind of know today? Well, it's quite messy, so be prepared for that, but we'll do our best to kind of give you a a reasonably clear sort of narrative of of how it occurs. So by the end of the the 16th century, so in, in, in Tudor England, there's still this kind of memory of the Romans. They have the writings of, for example, Bede. They have this sort of pseudo-historical memory of a, of a border in this region, but the particulars are either lost or they're a little bit confused, as, as Francis was outlining earlier. And I should also say at this point that there are communities along the wall, but they're not part of a, a kind of a unified community in the same way as, as Hadrian's Wall was in the Roman period. In the Tudor period, there is essentially a developing interest in piecing together England's past. I think a good place to sort of start the story of the recovery of Hadrian's Wall is with a guy called William Camden. So Camden was a classicist and he published a work called Britannia, which is a a large sort of volume of mixture of geography, of, of history, of stories of Britain's past that goes back to Roman times. And his initial editions are, are very much paper exercises as, as, as far as they pertain to Hadrian's Wall. But the significance of what he did is that in 1599, he actually visits Hadrian's Wall to see it for himself. He goes to Lanacost, Williford. He doesn't go to Housesteads because at this point it's, it's a bit too dangerous. But he does go to also the western end of the wall and to Newcastle, for example. And so in the resulting edition, he brings together the historical material that he's reading from accounts of Roman times with also this detailed observed evidence. And he describes what the wall is in its in its time. He, he describes the fact that there are turrets and there are mile castles and there are forts. And he, he finds some Latin inscriptions and things like that. And he essentially proposes that Hadrian is the first to build a wall. He again posits that Severus comes along and builds the Valum. And it doesn't really matter whether he's right or not. The point is that he's trying to make sense of both the physical evidence and the literature. And this really defines the kind of the question and the discussion of Hadrian's Wall for a century or so. And over the course of the next 150 years or so, Camden, 
and then some of the successors, they kind of add more detail to this portrait. And then by the 18th century, you've got various other antiquarians and travellers who start to come along and, and create their own descriptions of Hadrian's Wall. And they, they add drawings and surveys, and they find more inscriptions, for example. And then they, this is sort of the beginnings of a far more coherent and evidence-based study of what Hadrian's Wall did. Would Camden have seen any of these turrets standing at that point in Tudor times? Well, he describes them, so we must presume that he did. Hmm. I think what you're sort of hinting at is how high standing is Hadrian's Wall in this time? And that's quite an interesting question, because on the one hand, as, as Francis has rightly suggested, buildings can decay and fall quite quickly. But then on the other hand, we do have some descriptions or some hints that even by the Tudor period, there are some bits of Hadrian's Wall, which are still quite high standing. So it's possible to really get a sense of scale. I think it's probably going to be a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. That's a really tantalising thought, isn't it? But when we get to the stage where we're actually doing proper archaeology, when did the early archaeologists, these so-called antiquarians, start to visit and excavate the remains of the wall, Francis? Well, I think we've got a long way to go till they're called archaeologists, or they're what we would recognise as archaeologists. You know, as Andrew said, Camden in 1599 is one of the earliest ones. I'll give a little plug to another guy called Reginald Bainbrig, who actually made it to House Eds in 1599. He was more intrepid than Camden and his friend Robert Cotton. And Camden actually used Bainbrig's report in his update. But they're the starting point. And I thought what might be kind of useful is to use Chester's fort as a bit of a case study to show the development of visitors and kind of the development of the study. And you see how it kind of snowballs. So Chester's was in the middle section, like Halsteads, and wasn't visited super early. But someone called Thomas Matchell made it there in 1691. And then Mr. Smith of Durham visited in 1708. And he passed on his description to Gibson, who wrote another large tome on uh, Roman Britain. And this early stage, the 16th and 17th century, lots of these big reports are reliant on local correspondence. And that's quite interesting, these antiquarians who are writing, say, from London or elsewhere, are getting updates from there. And then it's really with the 18th century that we get more visitors able to access, particularly the central section, as the troubles, you know, the reaving that Andrew talked about, die down. And at Chester's, we've got a report by Horsley in 1732, Warburton in 1753, Hutchison in 1776. You know, you see they're coming almost thick and fast, really. In that sort of period at Chester's and at most other places, there's no archaeological work as we would know it. Sometimes inscriptions were found by agricultural work or purely by accident. Bishop Pocock, who did a lot of travelling and writing in Britain and on the continent, visited Chester's in 1760. And he talks about a building that had been recently discovered and also says tantalisingly, they now find very little coin at Chester's. So it seems that perhaps at some point, through gardening work or agricultural work, there was a lot of coins coming up. But it's not until really the 19th century that you get antiquarians who are more interested in excavation. Before that, they're kind of just reading the literary sources, Andrew says, viewing the monuments that they can see above ground and the inscriptions have been turned up. It's a real change. And Andrew talks about people living on the wall, but they know they're not really a big community. And a lot of the people on the wall didn't really know very much about the wall or necessarily care about the wall, which, you know, to a lot of modern people seems unusual. But William Hutton, who is a fascinating man, 
He was a printer in Birmingham, and in 1801, at the age of 78, he decided he wanted to walk Hadrian's Wall. So he sets off on foot from Birmingham, goes up through the Lake District, where he drops his daughter with some family friends. She was on a horse and cart. And then he walks all the way over to Wall's End, and then all the way back again. He writes a book, which is wonderful. And it's a real insight into kind of life on the wall for a few kind of particular aspects. And um, one really kind of interesting, but also slightly sad thing that he sees is, he says, at the 20th milestone, I should have seen a piece of the wall seven feet and a half high and 224 yards long, a sight not to be found in the whole line. This is at Plane Trees, not too far from Chester's. But as he's coming along, the landowner, Henry Tulip, is having it taken down to erect a farmhouse. And he said, just in the week before he came, there's been 95 yards destroyed. So William makes an impassioned plea. He says, the servant who was doing it, and he says, could you give my compliments to Mr. Tulip and request him to desist, or he would wound the whole body of antiquaries? as he was putting an end to the most noble monument of antiquity in the whole island. And I think <laughs> it shows that many of the people living on the wall at that point, this is 1801, for a lot of them, the wall still really was just either a quarry or, you know, something just to be there. And I think a lot of them were quite confused by these antiquaries coming up, if not suspicious. At Bird Oswald, it seems as though William Hutton might have been kind of run off from his description. He says... He entered into the house of Mr. Bowman and he said, I was received with that coldness which indicates an unwelcome guest, bordering upon a dismission. Basically, they thought he was either a government tax collector or perhaps a spy. So quite often through his book, he talks about how people are very suspicious of him coming to view this. They couldn't understand why he'd be coming so far and wanting to look at this stone in their house or these lumps and bumps in their gardens. So William... Hutton, you know, he's one of the antiquarians come to visit and he's finding that it's a bit of an oddity to the locals, which I think yes. is very different to today. Today, many of the locals who live on the wall are very interested and proud of the wall. But at that period, it still wasn't the case. Well, I suppose at that time they didn't really understand what it was and therefore they didn't understand the historical significance of it. No, exactly. Because although, you know, some people, you know, the names that Andrew and I have mentioned are starting to try to figure out what this monument was, mm. much of that information, that understanding, that knowledge had been lost. So they couldn't get their head around why someone would walk a few hundred miles up from Birmingham to see this thing in their back garden. Yes. There's also probably a class differential at play here because yeah. many of the people who are who are travelling are pretty wealthy either sort of minor aristocrats or a kind of an emergent middle class science community yeah science yes. intellectual community who have classical learning they know their latin they know their they know their history so they're kind of steeped in it whereas perhaps the more sort of what we would maybe term more kind of working class or, or landed sort of farmers say, you know, country yeah farmers farming class w wouldn't necessarily have had that background education yeah so they're just trying to make a living fundamentally aren't they exactly I think and to survive. So as we move into the 1800s, who are some of the key figures who took parts of the wall into their personal care, Francis? Well, the 19th century really sees the start of exploration and excavation, shall we say, on Hadrian's Wall. Before that, as we've discussed, it was any study on the wall was studying the visible remains or the chance finds or the literary sources. 
But as we move into the 1800s, people start actually putting spades into the ground and excavating and trying to answer some more questions and find more evidence to answer those questions. And one of the real figures in that is a man called John Clayton. He was born in 1792 to a wealthy family in Newcastle, a family of lawyers. The family had a country house, which had the Fort of Chester's or Silernum in their front garden. And John inherited that when he inherited the family estate in 1832. And by the time John died in 1890, he lived a very long life, he owned five forts and about 20 miles of Hadrian's Wall. And he brought them up as you know individual farm estates or individual fields. He brought them into his estate. And once they came into his estate, they came into his care. So once they were in his estate, you could no longer take the stone off the wall. He moved farmhouses off the line of the wall or out of the forts. So when John bought Housesteads in 1860, the Battle House that Andrews talked about was still occupied and there was still occupation and activity around the south gate of Housesteads, John built what you see now as a museum and the Holiday Cottage as a new farmhouse to take the farm away from the monument and stop it doing damage. But he also did a lot of excavation and that was from 1840 right through until he died in 1890. And he excavated at most of his forts. It was, you know, workmen, but he instigated them and would come along and also publish some of them. Although another really key figure that many people have heard about along Hadrian's Wall, if they've read anything, is John Collingwood Bruce. John Collingwood Bruce was a school teacher in Newcastle and was a great publicist in some ways. He published a lot of Clayton's excavations and promoted Clayton's work. He wrote something really nice in 1850, and I think he probably took this back later, but he said, some excavations recently made at Silernum and Borcovicus, which is Chester's and Househeads, show us that were the requisite skill and labour bestowed, we might in our own land walk in Roman streets and traverse Roman temples, little inferior in interest to those of Pompeii. Now, Bruce had never been to Pompeii at that point, so maybe once he'd been to Pompeii, he'd changed his mind. But it shows the real excitement that was there in that early to mid 19th century as people started to excavate and realise what was still underground. There were small excavations by other landowners, say at Bird Oswald and Maryport, but Clayton really was the beginning of this new season and this new era of investigation on the wall. I suppose if you weren't able to go on the grand tour, then there's this tantalising aspect that you could kind of visit Roman architecture and structures right here in Britain. Well, yeah, that's what got Bruce on the job, really. He wanted to go and do the grand tour with his son in 1848, wasn't able to, so went along the wall. And when he came back, he'd taken a couple of painters with him, the Richardson brothers, and they did sketches and illustrations of his tour with his son. And he gave some talks to the Newcastle Literary and Philosophical Society. And everyone was absolutely astounded at the remains, kind of almost in, you know, their backyard. And he then arranged the first pilgrimage to take people along the wall. And yeah, if there hadn't been the troubles on the continent and he had been able to go to the continent, we might not have had the powerhouse of investigation and publication that is John Collingwood Bruce. Because he, as, as Francis says, he takes people along the wall on this event known as the pilgrimage, which has taken place, I think, pretty much continuously ever since every 10 years, aside from maybe times of war. And the other thing that he does is that he publishes what we might call the first sort of guidebook to the wall, which was called the Roman Wall, and then, and then subsequent edition were known as the Wallet Book, which is essentially kind of like an itinerary of the wall, which is supposed to be carried. And that keeps 
visitors up to date with the history and, and also the kind of the latest results of archaeological excavations. And it's still being published today, albeit by modern scholars. It's still very popular. It's a very good source of reliable information along the wall. Bearing in mind the name of that book, Hadrian's name is missing. So at what point in history do we start to call Hadrian's Wall Hadrian's Wall? Oh, there's no simple answer there. (laughs) (laughs) We go back, we talk about Bede and Gildas, and obviously they never even mention Hadrian. They talk about Severus and the Roman Camden in his first edition of Britannia, which is 1586, calls it the Picts Wall. William Hutton, the guy who walked from Birmingham in 1801, calls it Severus's Wall because he thought Agricola, one of the generals who's in charge of the invasion of and settlement of Britannia, he thought he built the ditch and the bank. As Andrew said, Bruce calls it the Roman Wall. And kind of by the Bruce and Clayton era, the real argument is whether it was Hadrian or Severus and who built what if they built parts of it. And it was probably finally settled in the 1840s by an antiquarian called John Hodgson, that it was Hadrian who built the wall. And Clayton's excavations really helped confirm this with more inscriptions. So Bruce followed that. And sometimes Bruce gets the credit for saying it was Hadrian and, you know, confirming it, but it was, it was Hodgson. But there was still discussions as to whether the wall and the forts were separate. Bruce and Clayton themselves actually thought that Hadrian built the wall, but that some of the forts were perhaps built earlier when in factual fact, you know, they were a secondary decision to the wall. So it's really quite recent that it's been settled that it was called Hadrian's Wall and it's had many names across its 2000 year history. When did the first professional excavations start taking place along Hadrian's Wall? Well, let's say the turn of the 20th century. It's quite difficult and, and it's, it's also a little bit insulting sometimes when you try to delineate the amateurs from the professionals. But I, th- I think by the early 20th century, we're really talking about something approaching professional archaeology. And what that really involves is a more scientific approach. So you're working with the concept of stratigraphy, that essentially you have this kind of layers of material that can be dated and certain periods within the Roman period, dating things via objects more closely, looking at evidence that might have been overlooked and or thrown away, for example, by someone like Clayton, and particularly trying to answer very specific targeted questions by targeted excavation. So rather than very unkindly, people look back on Clayton and sort of thought of him as just someone who was basically kind of sort of haphazardly uncovering things and just sort of revealing things and, and throwing things away. And whereas now what in the 20th century, that they're, they're sort of been far more precise in where they dig, the extent of those excavations and the questions that they're really trying to answer. And so in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they're really trying to pin down in a lot more detail the sequence of how the wall was built, particularly the linear elements that the wall, the, the valley and the, the ditch, etc., and be a bit more precise about when and by whom. So obviously Hadrian's name gets attached to it in the 19th century, but then there's still some outstanding questions as to was it all sort of executed all in one go or was there sort of some kind of revisiting of it over over a period of years or decades. And so in in this period, you get confirmation of some of the details behind the building of the wall. So for example, an archaeologist called Francis Haverfield, who excavated just west of Bird Oswald, he discovered that prior to the stone wall being built there, there was the turf wall, for example. Archaeologists uh, J.P. Gibson, F.G. Simpson, 
they essentially prove archaeologically that the stone wall is built under Hadrian and essentially establish that all of its major elements of the wall were completed under Hadrian rather than under successive emperors. And this process of really sort of nailing down the big picture of, and the details behind the big picture of the wall is going on in the, in the, in the early decades of, of the 20th century. So I guess, let's say by the end of sort of the 1950s, you have a very detailed and seemingly comprehensive consensus about the wall's history, its purpose and its form. Francis, how long did these excavations continue for? And how did they give people a better understanding of the wall? Well, I think Andrew's kind of explained that from that early 20th century, much of the excavations were smaller scale and really targeted looking at the chronology. But we also have a few other key excavations that took place. So in Bed Oswald, we've already mentioned it quite a few times in our previous ones. The excavations in the 1980s and 90s were really important to understanding what had happened at the end of forts after the official end of Roman Britain. There was the famous excavations at Houses in 1898, which revealed the full outline of the fort and the plan. But then we had excavations in 1959 to 61 that looked at the development of the barracks and were really, really key for kind of understanding the changes there. And so there's the smaller than the large scale ones that Clayton did. However, the one really big excavation that did happen in the second half of the 20th century is that at Corbridge. So 1946 to 1973, there was a huge excavation led by Durham University. They used it as a training excavation at Corbridge. And they were very interested in looking at what was happening at the site in the fort phases. So the early phases of the site before it became a town, which is what really the Edwardian excavations had, had looked at. And one of the real legacies of that training excavation is how many people working in archaeology, in Roman archaeology, in Roman frontier studies, came and dug at Corbridge. One of the reports from the Times says it played a formative role in the training of many of today's archaeologists and historians. And it really did. There's some names in there. So the supervision was done by people like Eric Burley and Ian Richmond and lecturers Charles Daniels and George Joby, who went on to do lots of work in the north of England. But then people who came as students to Corbridge, there was David Brees, who wrote many of what have become the books that you need to read on Hadrian's Wall. Valerie Maxfield, who became a professor at Exeter and did some really important work in Egypt, looking at porphyry mines, quarries, the purple stone that's used around in high-status buildings. There was J.P. Wilde, who is the expert on Roman textiles, particularly in Britain, but further afield. Lindsay Elson-Jones, who many people have heard of, who's done some amazing work on small finds. So as well as the evidence that they uncovered at Corbridge as to what was happening at this fort before Hadrian's Wall was founded. So Corbridge was founded in the late 70s, early 80s. Corbridge was the training ground for many, many people. So it's had a huge impact on the wider Roman archaeology field because it's trained these people and sent them out into the world. Based on all that investigation and the development of the study of archaeology as well, and Roman studies in Northern England, what is the series of key understandings that we develop in this mid to late 20th century period? So up until about the 1950s, you essentially have this establishment of the detailed chronology, the function and form of the wall. And over the second half of the, of the 20th century, you have sort of an, an evolution to consider far more about how life worked within, for example, the forts, Corbridge as this complement to the forts along on Hainer's Wall as this frontier town. 
and with a sort of a greater sophistication of archaeological techniques, we started to be able to answer different questions and be able to uncover the evidence from different periods. So, for example, what happened at the bitter end at, at Bird Oswald? Bearing in mind what we know so far as a result of these 20th century archaeologists, how many digs have there been since the end of the 20th century and up until the present day? And how much more do we need to learn? So there hasn't been a huge amount of excavation in comparison to, say, the previous 150 years. However, what there has been is a lot of catching up. So there's been a lot of sites that were excavated that had never been published or studied. And there was a real concerted effort in the 90s and early 2000s to do that. And that was helped publish the Corbett's excavations, Houston's excavations, and other forts on the wall. Kind of the bigger excavations that have been, there was obviously Bird Oswald, which was the late 80s and early 90s, on the site of the fort. There was also, in 2009, there was some rescue excavations when it was realised that part of the cliff was disappearing with River Irthing, and they were extremely important on the cemetery site at Bird Oswald. Again, actually, at Bird Oswald, Newcastle University in Historic England, and we've done a podcast on that, are excavating this year, 2022, again, outside of the fort. There's been smaller excavations, particularly in the urban settings and Tyneside, when there's been developer-funded excavations that have found things. Some of the key things have been pinning down the wall line of the wall, in parts of Newcastle and investigating parts of the fort at Benwell when there's been housing developments. But I think it is very easy to say, oh, you know, we should dig more to find more. But actually, huge amounts of our archives have not been properly studied. As Andrew was saying, we change our kind of research objectives and things we're interested in. I say we, you know, the field. And there's a lot more that could be discovered by looking back through our collections. And also scientific techniques have come such a long way. And there's always something new that we can look at we're involved with a project linked to the Cardiff University that's going to be looking at cattle supply to Hadrian's Wall and compared it to the military sites in Wales. Um, and that'll be using isotope data, which you know wouldn't be possible 20 years ago. I think if there's one sort of area where excavation can potentially change our understanding of the wall, it's not so much within the forts themselves or a study of the linear elements of, of the wall. It's outside the forts in, in the surrounding communities. So some of what Francis talked about there in terms of Bird Oswald were excavations that took place in the civilian settlement or else in the burial, uh, in the cemetery, essentially around the fort. And that's where the ongoing excavations at Bird Oswald are really trying to make a difference to really understand what these communities were like and, and the people that lived there. If we um, shift our attention to the modern day then, how has the story of Hadrian's Wall been recorded in modern history and in popular culture and literature? So there have been plenty of creative responses to the wall that go all the way back to the late medieval period where it was kind of appearing in, in maps. It's also in the last 500 years appeared in various works of art, in literature, in film, even computer games. So it, it often turns up in the background or as part of visual media, most famously in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, a film from the 90s. It turns up as a backdrop to Kevin Costner's return from, from Crusade to Nottingham via Dover and Hadrian's Wall, which is, is not a route that I'd necessarily recommend. And, and certain part of the action takes place at a place called um, Sycamore Gap, where you have a tree growing right on the line of the wall. It's very popular to this day with tourists to come and recreate that moment. 
more recently, uh, it turns up in the latest Assassin's Creed video game, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, where you're able to kind of visit the wall after the Romans have left, although the wall actually looks suspiciously more like the Great Wall, wall of China rather than Hadrian's Wall as we know it. And it turns up often in various places in, in literature. You know, the idea of a wall is something that is is often played with by authors. The idea of having a kind of a boundary to a kingdom or to a society as a kind of a bulwark between that society and what, what is outside of it. And that idea kind of goes all the way back to the Romans who saw and to the, the Historia Augusta, which records that Hadrian was the first to build a wall between the Romans and, and the barbarians. And, and many creative responses to it sort of take this idea of the wall as this sort of bulwark between civilization and the dangers the other that live 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 outside it one of the most recent very famous popular culture things that have taken inspiration from Hades wall is game of thrones you know an absolutely huge phenomenon that has got a wall at the northern edge of its empire that separates you know the kingdom from the wildlings as they call them and it's written by a man called george rr R. martin and he has stated that he came to housesteads and stood at the northern edge of the fort, looked you know down, looked north, and thought about the soldiers stationed on the wall. Now, the ice wall in Game of Thrones is quite a lot bigger than Adrian's wall ever was. It's absolutely huge. But what's really interesting is that concept of other, and he calls them the wildlings. They're seen as less civilized, more savage, and you know that is how the Romans portray people outside of their empire. Game of Thrones is becoming a phenomenon and we do have people come into houses because they've read or seen Game of Thrones. But there's other bits and bobs. So Woodyard Kipling wrote a book called Puck of Pook's Hill in 1906, the story of a soldier based on the wall. In 1937, Auden wrote a poem, Roman Wall Blues, from the point of view of a centurion who appears not to be very happy to be stationed along the wall. Auden did not seemingly have a good idea of having nice weather on the wall. And actually, only last week, I was having a chat with an author who wanted some information because he's been commissioned to write a short story for young adults for the Hadrian's War 1900 Festival based around Hadrian's War. So it's constantly inspiring people, you know, whether that's, as Andrew said, visual, audio, the modern digital video games. It just inspires people all the time because it looms so large Lots of estates have got street names of Roman forts or Roman names. The uh, metro station at Wall's End is all in Latin, Sagadunum. You know, there's bits everywhere along the wall that remind you you're near Hadrian's Wall and on this Roman site. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Game of Thrones, I, I find, is that there's this idea that, as Francis says, that you can build this barrier that protects you kind of civilization from the other the, the wildlings on the other side of it but ultimately what, what's quite interesting is that that is proved to be futile not only do eventually the knights watch allow the wildlings through the wall and then ally with them but the wall eventually is going to come crashing down because the true danger the white walkers will ultimately destroy it so i think there's sort of something of a lesson in that for those that would think that walls mean that you'll be protected Looking beyond the wall's present and into its future, how is English heritage ensuring that the ruins of the wall and its forts are conserved and preserved, Francis? Well, we're doing a lot. So English heritage, each region has what we call a building conservation manager and they organise repairs to the wall of all sorts. That's overseen by a team of property curators who are usually archaeologists and extremely knowledgeable because Almost all the works to Hadrian's Wall require some sort of permission. 
known as scheduled monument consent. We have to seek that permission from Historic England, who's the public body that looks after, you know, nationally, England's historic environment. And I think probably most visitors wouldn't realise or notice a lot of the work we do, but you would notice it if we didn't do it because the monument would start to deteriorate. So the main issues that we have to deal with across the wall are keeping on top of drainage. You probably imagine we have a fair bit of rain. Rebedding of loose stones, and that can be due to people or sheep, both of whom we would discourage to walk on the wall. Ground erosion, burrowing animals and vegetation growth. And each one of those requires us to do different work. We've got four pay-to-enter sites and 30 free-to-enter sites all along the wall. And they're all in slightly different environments. You know, some of the smaller ones up on the top of the basalt cliffs are extremely exposed to the elements. So each site has a conservation plan as well as a statement of significance. And that helps the property curators and the conservation manager to understand the site and its needs, its priorities, you know, what's its archaeological potential. And we do different things. So lots of our free sites are mostly within farmland managed by farmers and they're grazed by sheep, which in one way is great because it keeps the vegetation down. You know, vegetation can do a lot of damage. But everyone will have seen a photograph of a sheep climbing on Hadrian's Wall. You know, they do get curious or just cheeky and they climb on the wall and rebedding stones on Hadrian's Wall is quite a large task. As there's a countryside code, there is also a Hadrian's Wall National Trail code that we sign up to, which is about picking up your litter, closing gates, but also not walking on the wall. English Heritage alongside Historic England are coming to the end of a very long project, which has been looking at types of mortar, because you want to use the correct type of mortar, both kind of historically, but also to ensure that it's going to stay for longer. And each of our sites have different weather conditions. The stone that the wall's built from varies. So this research, which has been kind of about 20 years in the making, because you have to leave mortar samples out to find out if they're going to last or weather. And it'll really help our teams to use the best materials to protect our sites. They've even been trialling some of the mortar mixes that are similar to those ones the Romans used to see whether or not we could go back to kind of more Roman recipes, say for mortar. Another really hidden thing that people won't realise we do is drainage. Now, many visitors to the Temple of Mithras at Carabruff will have gone and thought, oh, site's a bit boggy here, isn't it? That's through natural springs that have been kind of courses of change. But unfortunately, we can't do very much about that. We've got drains already installed and they do a lot to keep the site drier than it would be but if we dried the site out completely then the archaeology that's underground would suffer because the archaeology has got used to being wet so the property curators and conservation managers a constant balance of what's good for the archaeology what's good for the visitors what's good for the environment so lots of our central sector of Hadrian's Wall is within a triple SI so a site of special scientific interest so decisions made there um, on those sections have to take into account the archaeology and the ecology. You know, it's a constant juggling act. We mentioned earlier Bird Oswald, where in 2009 there was an excavation of the cemetery because the cliff was being eroded away by the river. Now, there was a big study done on could we shore that cliff up? Could we protect the archaeology by stopping that cliff eroding? But it was a cost analysis was you know, that it would be millions almost, you know, to shore that cliff up. And then even then a big storm or another event could take it down. So the decision was taken to excavate and kind of sacrifice and accept that part of that cliff will collapse. And that's the sort of decisions we make at all of our sites. It's we have to repair the monument and keep it in good nick. But you're also trying to weigh up the costs and benefits. And 
we're also really what we're really lucky to have and I wanted to give them a shout out here really in this section is a wonderful team of volunteers who are wall monitors and they go out not just we actually have these nationally not just on the Hadrian's Wall but to all of our free sites and they do regular checks so they'll take photographs and send in reports of what the site's looking like to keep an eye out for erosion rabbit holes that might be bringing up archaeology vegetation but also quite often they're picking up litter and reporting any acts of say vandalism or damage by people and they're really a key part of our conservation work is keeping on top of and monitoring and recording the state that our monument is in. Adrian's Wall's not a small site to deal with and so <laughs> there's a lot to do. Yes 73 miles of conservation and preservation to uh, potentially look after there. Bearing in mind all the work that goes into ensuring that uh, the wall is as historically accurate and well presented as possible. How important is the wall to the overall economy of the north of England, Andrew? Well, it's vitally important. Hadrian's Wall gets hundreds of thousands of visitors every year. People come from across Britain and across Europe, across the world to visit Hadrian's Wall. They can range from coach parties to day trippers to those who are determined to walk the entire length of the wall. And it's part of the World Heritage Site, known as the, the Frontiers of the Roman Empire, alongside its the more northerly Antonine Wall and the Limes in, in Germany. The reason why it can sustain this level of visitorship is because it's one of the most extensively interpreted ancient monuments in the world. English Heritage has a portfolio of four major sites, but Oswald, Housesteads, Chesters and Corbridge, as well as 35 or so free-to-enter sites. But they're only one part of, of a wider offer along the wall. So there are half a dozen or so other museums um, run by different organisations along its length, which provide, again, more variety, different kinds of visits, different kinds of sites. And indeed, beyond the sort of the Roman story, there are various non-Roman sites. You know, there are loads of castles, other conservation areas, areas of, of outstanding natural beauty, and some other sites that we've also discussed today, I think places like Lanacost and, and Hexham that kind of enrich the deepen, deepen the story of the wall and broaden it out to sort of the rich history of the North. So, for example, its role in the development of Christianity and, and Anglo-Saxon England. And all of this is really supported by an infrastructure, you know, such as hotels and restaurants and cafes and things, good lateral rail links. There's a, there's a railway that runs along the frontier, a road that runs along the frontier. And indeed, you can visit many sites along Hadrian's Wall by catching the AD122 bus. So when you put all these together, you, you've really kind of come full circle and you have a, a restoration of a community that coheres to an extent around the line of the wall, just as it would have done 1900 or so years ago. And in fact, the wall is surrounded by towns and villages, just like settlements sprang up around the forts 1900 years ago. But what is Hadrian's Wall like as a place to live near to today, Francis? Well, it completely depends where you live. If you're living in Wall's End, then there's not very much above ground to see, but you've got lots of your street names have got Roman names. You have a big museum. As I said before, your metro station is in, signs are in Latin. So you never forget, I don't think, even though maybe there's not huge upstanding remains to see. If you live in some of the tranquil parts on the Tyne Valley, say in Chester's, it's a beautiful place to live. You're on the brown tourist Hadrian's Wall route. You're going to see lots of visitors walking the wall. You might run a cafe or a B&B &B that depends on that. And then it changes again. You're living in 
some of the more remote places in the central sector or towards Bird Oswald, you'll still be seeing the visitors, but it's, you know, a rural but a very different environment to what's around Chester's. And then when you get over towards Carlisle in the western section, you have much less kind of upstanding remains again because of the way that the monument remains, but you've got different sites and you all along you're going to have visitors coming to the wall, walking the, the National Trail. I think it's probably very unlikely you wouldn't know that the wall was here and at least that it was Roman. Most people who've grown up in this area have been to the wall on a school trip or with family. It's very much a part of the locale. You live near Hadrian's Wall. So it's different, I think, to say the 17th, 18th, 19th century, where the farmers perhaps don't know what the wall is or maybe don't care. I think most people know and are at least interested to some extent in that wall and perhaps proud that they come from where the wall is because it is so well known. So it does continue to be a source of fascination for local people, visitors and academics. That's a pretty impressive legacy 1900 years on after its initial creation. But here's a final big question for you both. What would you say is the place of Hadrian's Wall in the wider history of Britain? Oh. <laughs> I mean, it physically, it occupies 73 miles of the British Isles from one river to another. Yeah. So I think that's geographically quite an impressive thing to start with. But uh, what else would you say? I think it's the first large scale monument that has been put into the north of Britain for me. And it marks such a change for the people in the area where the wall is built. And even when the Romans leave, their mark has always been left with the wall. And no matter how misunderstood it is, there's always some sort of understanding. It's always in people's minds, whether that's in literary sources or artistic. So for me, I think it's, I don't know, it's its longevity and it's the fact that it still fascinates people. And one of the reasons I find it fascinating is that there's still so much we don't know. And I think people love the fact that we don't know everything. Well, I do anyway. The mystery of history, as you might say. Andrew, what, <laughs> what's your final thought about uh, what Hadrian's Wall's place is in the wider history of Britain? Well, I think the our kind of initial episode centred upon how this material legacy was, was sort of initiated as part of this really impressive imperial project. Our middle two episodes have really been about kind of adding more people to that picture and, and how they have adapted, perpetuated the wall and left this deep and rich archaeological legacy. I think what this episode demonstrates is really the richness of what comes next and how the wall provokes thoughts, not just about its specific history, but about the natures of borders, how it kind of inspires creative responses, and ultimately becomes an object of deep fascination to visitors from across the country and the world. And I think this is really crucial because it propels Hadrian's Wall to become what I would say is only really one of a handful of ancient monuments that kind of transcend the specifics of their original function, transcend their original history, as it were. And thus, it's kind of this touchstone in debates about the past, not just about Roman Britain, but also about borders and also kind of an inspiration for people to make sense of Britain's past and present. So I guess I'd kind of leave you with this. I think that in its 1900th anniversary, Bede's words are still apt. When he wrote his ecclesiastical history, he said that this famous wall is still there to be seen. And I would encourage visitors to go and see it, to think about its history, 
but also to reflect on what it means to them or else let it inspire their creativity and in doing so move the story of the wall into a new chapter. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're introduced to Henrietta Howard, who built Marble Hill in southwest London. After all that uncertainty, going from lodging to lodging with her first husband, then being taken around as part of the royal household, it must have felt like, thank goodness, perhaps I've got at least a little bit of stability. Thanks for listening. See you next time.